But this is the conclusion to our Life of Messiah study. This we began about a year ago, and it was a six-month study that we did. In the Life of Messiah, we covered all four of the Gospels in just six months. So this morning, we're, we're going through about four chapters of the Gospels, and that might make your jaws drop and think you're going to be here four hours, but usually we finished within an hour. Um, so this outline that you have, it's just two sides of one page. Our outlines for the Life of Messiah were usually 20 to 30 pages. So I think we'll get through this, Lord willing. Um, but even so, uh, the bulk of the material is going to be on the front half of the page. Um, so don't get too worried if it seems like we're going slow at first. But what we are doing in this 24th lesson in the life of Messiah is we are looking at the most important event in history. We are looking at the resurrection of Christ, something that had never happened before. Though there had been resuscitations, no one had ever entered into a resurrection life before. This is something that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has done. And it is the guarantee that we as well will join him in his resurrection. This is the proof that he conquered death and that his payment for our sins was received. And so that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that this was of first importance. The Corinthian church was a lawless church. This was a group of people that were so embedded in immorality uh, that it took him two letters to really clean this up, and he was chased out of Corinth before he was able to really spend much time in that city and raise them up to maturity through the preaching of the word. And so as he is writing this first letter, and he spends the first uh, large portion of 1 Corinthians telling them about, or a uh, attempting to mature them in their faith by preaching to them the pure word of God, he reminds them what he taught them from the very beginning. And he says this was first importance. It was the gospel. And he spends the rest of chapter 15 discussing the resurrection. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6 cites the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a basic Bible doctrine. He's exhorting them to move beyond the basic doctrines and to learn more. But here we do want to take some time and focus on this basic Bible doctrine because it is missed or it is skipped in so much preaching. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul gives us the gospel. And it has two sides. It's two sides of the same coin, though. He says that Christ died. This was the message that he came preaching. This was the message that the Corinthians believed. This was the message that Paul believed, and he received salvation through that faith. Christ died, and he was raised again. What comes after Christ died, he specifies the reason. Christ died for the reason of our sins. He gives us the basis. This was according to Scripture. This was according to God's revealed will. And that he was buried. This proved his death. But now it says that he was raised. This is the other side of the coin, and the specification is that he was raised on the third day. The basis, again, was God's revealed will on the basis of Scripture. And the evidence is a list of eyewitness accounts to the resurrection that Paul gives us, because this is such an important doctrine. He wants to give us every evidence that he can, that it is true, so that we can stand on this without wavering, because the resurrection was proof, 
Not just that he died, but that his death worked. That it worked to break the chains of death. That Jesus conquered death. And so when he promises us life, we know that he has the ability to give it. So we want to begin by looking at Christ's resurrection. What happened that morning? And what does it mean for us? And so we begin at the tomb. We begin on resurrection day. And before we begin, it's important to remember that the Jewish way of reckoning time is different than our Western calendars. The new day begins at about 6 p.m. the day before. And so Saturday, as soon as it was dark and three stars were visible in the night sky, it was now Sunday, where we would still call it Saturday. And so I've given the times at the top according to our time. This was Saturday in the early evening. This was Sunday morning by the Jewish way of telling time. So he says, now after the Sabbath, which was Saturday, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. So this is on Saturday, just before three stars are visible in the night sky. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now they knew where it was because they watched the body being taken away. They watched it being placed in the grave. And then they went away and came back after the Sabbath was over. Just after dark then, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and bought spices. They could not have bought spices on the Sabbath. It would have been closed. But once the Sabbath was finished, shops would begin to open and people could begin to buy and trade once more. And the reason that they bought these spices was so that they might come and anoint Christ. Now, the Jews did not practice embalming. They did not embalm bodies so as to mummify them. But they would do this to avoid any stench coming from the tomb. They anticipated finding a corpse in this tomb. They did not anticipate the body being gone, let alone Christ being raised. But in the middle of the night, sometime between the late hours of Saturday and early hours of Sunday, our time, it says, behold, a severe earthquake occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now it's important here to note that an earthquake marked the moment of his death. In Matthew 27, verse 51, the very first thing we are told as soon as he gives up his spirit is that the ground shook and that rocks broke apart, that the temple was even, uh, the temple veil was even torn in two. Here we have yet another earthquake. This marks the very moment of his resurrection. Matthew 28, 3 continues, and this, or and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. This angel that they saw terrified them. This probably allowed these, uh, or yeah, it, it does say that these were scared stiff or scared uh, almost to the point of death. But now we're still in the pre-dawn hours before light has come up on the horizon. Someone goes to visit the tomb. 
John 20 tells us, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now we don't know exactly when this happened, but it happened sometime in the very early morning hours because she has time to do quite a bit before the dawn even rises. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and that is John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She has not yet encountered the risen Christ. The first time she went to the tomb that morning, she found it empty and she left. She went to tell Peter and John, and they responded. Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple, John, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there and he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, that is John, then also entered after Peter, and he saw and believed. He did not believe in the resurrection at this point. He believed Mary's account that the body had been taken, and that's important. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture. They didn't get it yet. Though they saw the empty tomb, they were not thinking of Christ's words that he would be raised again. As yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he must raise, rise again from the dead, and so the disciples went away again to their homes. Now, they apparently did not see the need to wake the other disciples yet. They could tell them this in the morning, but by the time morning came, yet another shocking revelation will have occurred. So now we move into the post-dawn hours. After the sun has risen, a few more women go to the tomb. Very early on the first day of the week, they, that is the women excluding Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They did not know what Mary had seen that night earlier. They did not know what Peter and John had come to see. They expected there to be a stone covering the grave that they would have to roll away. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man, that is the angel, sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who has been crucified, but he has risen, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. In Luke, the angel says something very similar. He says, he is not here, but he has risen. And then he tells them to remember something, something that Jesus had told them before his crucifixion. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. This was in Matthew 16. 
And they remembered his words. And he said to them, or here's going back to Mark 14. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. They're supposed to meet him in Galilee. And they are all still in Jerusalem. They were there because they didn't believe he would be raised again. And, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And we all know that Peter did fall away and he denied Christ three times that evening. But in Mark 16, he continues, but go tell his disciples and Peter. This is the angel speaking to these women. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So this morning, as we look at all these accounts of the sightings of Christ, these are sightings which they could have easily had had they just gone where he said to go. But rather, it takes some of them days to see the resurrected Christ. I think he was waiting in Galilee for them. They went out and fled from the tomb, for, uh, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In Luke 24, again it says, they remembered his words, they remembered what Christ had told them, and they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. So these women said nothing to anyone on their way to see these disciples. But once they arrived to the group of disciples, they told them. And it says to the eleven and to the rest. Well, by the time they got there, Mary Magdalene had already been back to the tomb. We're going to look at that in a minute. She had gone to the tomb and she had met the resurrected Christ. And these women on their way home from the tomb to tell these disciples also met the resurrected Christ. And so when they come in to tell these disciples, they don't have a message just to go to Galilee that Christ is gone, but that he has been raised and that they have seen him and that they should go to Galilee. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Notice every single witness to the resurrection of Christ at this point is a female. And in the Jewish uh, custom, a female's testimony is not worth anything. She cannot testify before a court. She cannot be the witness of a crime. But Jesus chose to reveal himself first to these women. He is trying to get these faithful disciples to be faithful, to believe, to believe his words that he said beforehand. Now it says that they did not believe them. This is in the imperfect. But in the next verse, Luke gives us a notation about what had occurred already at this point. He says, but Peter had gotten up and ran to the tomb. Peter's already been there. He's already seen that it's empty. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And so Peter already saw the empty tomb. 
when these women come saying, not just is it empty, but he's been raised again and we have seen him and we have seen the testimony of an angel as well to it. Peter still doesn't believe, but he should have. And so now we move into the sightings. When was he seen and in what order? Well, the very first person to see the resurrected Christ was Mary Magdalene. And she saw him, apparently, as soon as John and Peter left. She stayed there at the tomb after bringing them there. Mark 16 tells us, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. John gives us even more detail about this. He says, but Mary had been standing outside the tomb. This is in the pre-dawn uh, hours of the morning after Peter and John had left, but before the other women come to anoint his body. And so as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, these angels, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, this probably has two factors contributing to it. First, this is still before the light had dawned. She cannot see him clearly, but even in his resurrected body, when he meets two men on the road to Emmaus, even they have trouble recognizing who he is, partly because they would never expect to see Jesus. They did not believe that he would rise again, but also because he is in a resurrection body. And there is something different about this resurrection body. But Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now this, speaking of her name, this is something that she had heard him say before. Surely she had heard him address her by name, and she recognized this word from him. But Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Why did Jesus tell her not to touch him? Later, we see them worshiping at his feet, kissing his feet. Later, we see them putting their fingers into his wounds. He instructs them to do so. Why can't Mary touch Jesus? There's a very good reason for that, and it has to do with his high priesthood, the office that he was about to take up. In Hebrews 9.23, we're told, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with 
better sacrifices than these. Just as the Jews, for the entire duration of the Mosaic law, have cleansed the temple and the temple instruments with the blood of sacrificed animals. Keep in mind this temple that they created is a replica, a copy, a shadow of what God had revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai and instructed him very specifically to build on earth. It is not the copy which needs cleansing, but the very sanctuary itself because of sin. And so what these animal sacrifices replicate here on earth, we have the real McCoy here with Christ. These heavenly things themselves could not be cleansed with animal sacrifices. These heavenly things must be cleansed with a better sacrifice, and there is only one better sacrifice. Hebrews 9.24 continues, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Now here in Hebrews 9, the sacrifice that is explained of bulls and calves is the atonement sacrifice from Leviticus 16 and 17. The procedure for this was very specific. And the priest would bathe himself and put on new clothing. And then he would make the sacrifice. And once it was completed, he would bathe himself again and put on different clothing. If at any point he was touched by anything between offering this sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, the ritual would have to begin again. The sacrifice would not be accepted otherwise. Jesus is telling Mary not to touch him because he is revealing himself to her in his resurrected body before even he has gone up to the heavenly places to cleanse the heavenly temple. We get to see him right away. And this, I think, demonstrates his love for Mary and for humanity. In Hebrews 9.11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This occurred the morning of his resurrection. Between the dark of the morning when Mary first saw him and the light when these other women met him. Hebrews 9.15 tells us he is raised and he is the mediator now of a new covenant. And that is the covenant by which we have access to him, to the blessings of salvation, of resurrection, of redemption, of regeneration. The new covenant can be summed up in the program of regeneration that was promised because the old covenant was unable to fix the problem of sin. It could only indicate the problem of sin, but here Jesus has solved the problem of sin once and for all. He has paid the penalty and he has given new life. That was the first sighting of Christ. The second was to these women who appeared at the tomb to anoint his body early that morning. Matthew 28, 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, 
and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is just after the women left the tomb after the angel told them to go and tell the other disciples to meet Christ in Galilee. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. What do you think the disciples should do when these women meet them in the upper room? There's only one answer that should be clear. They should go to Galilee. They shouldn't do anything else. Pack up your bags and get out of Jerusalem. Go to Galilee. But they don't believe right away. Now there is an intermission here in the uh, biblical account in Matthew. And it's an important one because it shows us that Israel missed their last sign in the first century of Christ's Messiahship. Back in Matthew 12, just as the leaders of Israel were rejecting Christ and his Messiahship, Jesus told them that all the signs that he was uh, giving them during the first year of his uh, ministry on earth, all of those signs of healing would not be anymore for the purpose of bringing people to faith but only for those who already had faith. But he said, there is one sign that I will still give to Israel at large, only the sign of resurrection. John 11 records the first sign of resurrection. After Lazarus had been in the grave for three days, Christ raised him from the dead. And it says that many came to believe in Jesus because of this. And in fact, this was one of the inciting events that convinced the leadership of Israel they could not let Jesus live anymore. They have to kill him because he is inciting people to follow his doctrines rather than the Pharisees. This is the second sign of resurrection that he gave to Israel. Israel was to see this resurrection and come to faith. Now, many, many, many do come to faith. We know that after Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, that 3,000 come to faith after hearing of Christ's resurrection. But the leaders of Israel saw this sign of resurrection and did not believe. They rejected it. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. In other words, do not let people believe that he was raised from the dead. This is the obvious conclusion. He had preached it in the temple just days before. The Pharisees knew what he claimed he would do. In fact, this was one of the charges that they tried to bring against him in his kangaroo trial the night before his crucifixion. He claimed to tear down the temple and he would build it up again in three days. And there was evidence presented in that trial that he meant his body and not the temple itself. They knew he claimed that he would be raised from the dead. They did not want Israel to believe this. And if this should come to the governor's ears, the priests told these guards, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. You see, the excuse that they're supposed to tell Israel was that they fell asleep. But this is a capital offense in the Roman guard. 
they would be killed for this. And so these chief priests tell them, if it comes to that, we will protect you. First and foremost, though, Israel cannot believe that he has been raised from the dead. So they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. This was the first alternative story to the resurrection. Many have been supposed since. Many have tried to disprove the resurrection of Christ. And all are as silly and flimsy as this. The historical evidence, even outside of the Bible itself, is so strong to attest the resurrection of Christ that if we are to doubt his resurrection, we are to doubt as well the very existence of Shakespeare or Horace or even Caesar himself. Because our record of Christ's resurrection is even stronger than the records of all of those. But then Jesus reveals himself a third time. And he reveals himself to two of his disciples in his outer circle of disciples of the 70 on the road to Emmaus. Now this is just outside of Jerusalem. They're heading home after the Passover. They're now able to walk this distance uh, because the Sabbath is over. And they are leaving Jerusalem, but they're not going to Galilee. They're going home. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Now, this is Mark's account. It's very short. Luke's is longer. We won't have time to read through all of that this morning. But one of the men who is identified here is Cleopas in Luke 24, 18. He is the husband of one of the Marys, probably one who went to the tomb that morning. He also succeeded James as the leader of the church in Jerusalem after James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and stoned to death. It was Cleopas in AD 66 who led Israel out of Jerusalem because they received the book of Hebrews, and this saved them from being destroyed along with the unbelieving Jews in the sack of Jerusalem in AD 70. Cleopas is a very important character in Acts. And here, he is the third person to whom Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection. Luke 24, 33 does does, uh, tell us a bit of the account after Jesus met these two men on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize him, but he walked along with them, and he told them things that made their hearts burn in their chest, because Jesus was revealing to them scripture. The indications from the Old Testament that what had just occurred in Jerusalem was precisely what God had predicted in the Old Testament would occur, and that proves Jesus' Messiahship. Well, he came in to eat with them, and as he broke the bread, he became visible to them in the sense that they recognized who he was. And so it says they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They had been traveling later in the day on that Sunday, They had come home and they turned into their home because it was getting late. But as soon as they saw the resurrected Christ and knew who he was, they got up from their dinner and they went back to Jerusalem because they had to tell the disciples. There was uh, earlier in this conversation in Luke, we saw that these men had heard the testimony of these women and they had disbelieved it. But now they believe it and they've got to go back and tell the disciples. 
Well, when they get back, they find the ladies still pleading with the disciples to believe them. But at this time, they find out that Christ has also appeared to Peter. It says they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and he has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. By the time they got back to Jerusalem, Christ had revealed himself to Peter. We're not told anything about this account. Christ had told Peter, when he told Peter that he would deny him three times, he said that he would come back and establish Peter, that he would strengthen him. And once he was strengthened, that he should go and feed his flock. Christ appeared to Peter and he strengthened him. Peter was the first one among these disciples to see the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul thinks this is important to include as one of the first evidences of the resurrection. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now you'll notice there's three different names used for Peter here. One is his Greek name, one is his Hebrew name, and one is his Aramaic name. This is his Aramaic name here. After this, Jesus appears to all of the remaining disciples, save for Timothy. Thomas. Save for Thomas. In John 20, verse 19, it says, So when it was evening on that day, on Sunday, after these two disciples from the road to, Aram, uh, road to Emmaus had returned, after Christ had appeared to Peter, Christ appears to the whole group. The first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. This tells us why they're not leaving. They're locked away in the upper room, and they're scared to go out. Because the Jews, or at least they assume, are still hunting them to kill them. And guess what? If they find out that these are preaching the resurrection of Jesus, they might actually try to kill them. So they're scared. We're going to see a radical transformation in these once they believe in the resurrection. But Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is his first commission of the apostles after the resurrection. He had already told them in the upper room discourse, probably in the same room they're standing in now, that he was going to send them into the world and that they would preach all that he had taught them. And here he is saying, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Look back for a second at John 14, 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, a promise given specifically to the apostles, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit is going to have a special ministry to these apostles to bring to their memory everything that Jesus had taught for the important task of preserving it in the New Testament so that we might have it today, so that we might trust it, so that we might have the very testimony 
of these apostles, just as the first century did. And then he says, peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you. Do not, or not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This had occurred three days before. They should remember it, especially since he begins the same way he ended. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He is fulfilling the promise that he gave to them. And from this point forward, the Spirit is with them to enable them to this task. Now, this is not yet spirit baptism. They're not inducted yet into the body of Christ. But they have this special enablement from the Spirit to understand what Christ had said before the resurrection. The spirit baptism will come a few days or a few weeks later at Pentecost. And they will be as well the first to receive that ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Christ had given this commission to Peter and Peter alone back in uh, Matthew 16 and 18, but here he extends it to the whole apostolic group. And this gives them authority in the church. We see this demonstrated in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. In John 20, verse 24, we see a conflict arise, though. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now what's the issue with this? I mean, on its face, we can see a lot of issues with it. He's just not willing to believe. But really, he should have, because he is being given the task of preaching to a world who did not see the resurrected Christ. He is going to bring this testimony to the world. And in fact, I believe he ends up in India being killed for this message. But he is unwilling to believe the apostles himself. He should have believed the women when they came. He should have believed the outer circle of disciples when they came. But now he is being told by 10 apostles that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is unwilling to believe them while he is to share in this commission to go and preach. But Jesus is gracious. He is merciful to Thomas and he does appear to them. But he waits eight days to do this. Now all of this time the disciples, rather than going to Galilee, are waiting in Jerusalem because Thomas does not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your fingers and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus came and he did meet Thomas where he needed because Thomas had a ministry to fulfill. Christ had commissioned him to go out and preach. 
And Christ was confirming himself here to Thomas. All of the disciples are guilty of not believing the testimony of these women. All of the disciples are guilty of not having believed in the resurrection before he was even crucified, even though he very clearly taught them this. And so we gang up on Thomas. He was just the slowest one to the party. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Now they all could have seen him had they gone to Galilee. They would have seen him days earlier. But here we see that Christ does meet them anyways. Now, this is where John formally concludes his book, but he does add an appendix on later. In John 20, verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And this is exactly what occurs when we believe in this resurrection of Christ. But John was very selective in what he wrote in the Gospel of John. Many of the other uh, books, including especially Mark, which just gives us miracle after miracle after miracle, can be a little overwhelming even at times. John records only seven miracles of Christ. These should have been more than sufficient for convincing anyone of his messiahship. And of the over 1,000 days of Christ's ministry on earth, his formal ministry, John only writes about perhaps 70 of those days. 7% of Christ's ministry. And he only touches on some days. He doesn't give us a whole breakdown of what happened the whole day. Of everything we have recorded in the book of John, we get only a few hours of Christ's life. Imagine what he did with the other thousands of days. But John's purpose here was not to give us an exhaustive list of details of the life of Christ, but so that whoever would read this book might come to believe the very thing that these apostles at first struggled. But as we see Thomas's struggle to believe, we also see him convinced. The greatest skeptic that we see is convinced of his resurrection. And so if we still disbelieve, we should be reminded that this man who was unwilling to believe without absolute evidence got enough evidence to believe. This is, once again, a testimony to the truth of Christ's resurrection. Now, John's appendix comes in chapter 21. And honestly, it's one of my favorite chapters we see Christ in intimate fellowship with these disciples. He only has 40 days left on earth, and he spends one of those days just sitting by the seashore with his disciples, just fellowshipping with them. The first 14 verses, we get the setup. Seven of these apostles had returned to Galilee, just as they were told, but they went back to their old jobs. They went back to being fishermen, and they're having no luck. They're casting their nets. They're pulling them up empty. But they see a man on the shore who tells them to cast on the other side, and they do. 
and they pull up a net full of fish. In fact, John tells us 153 fish. This impressive number is amplified by the fact that this net did not break. 153 fish should have broken that net. Christ not only gave them the success that they were looking for, but he supported them in that. But then once they realize who it is and they rush to the shore, they get there and they realize they didn't need these fish to begin with. Jesus already has a fire set up. He's already got fish broiling. He's already prepared everything for them on the shore. All the work that they're doing, it's unnecessary. Besides, he's given them a different task, not to be fishermen, but fishers of men. John writes that this is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This account primarily focuses on Peter as well. Though this is written by John and we see John appear, Christ had a specific message for Peter. As they're sitting there on the shore, as they're eating together, John writes, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, Feed my lambs. Now, English is unfortunately restricted in this sense because these are two very different words for love. Jesus asks Peter, do you agapao me? This is from the noun agape. Do you have agape love for me? And Peter responds, I phileo you. Now remember when we went through the epistles of John, we spent a lot of time looking at what is agapao love. Because this is a word almost non-existent in secular writing. I think we have two instances of it in the entire historical world of literature. But in scripture, it occurs again and again and again and again, hundreds of uses. Because this is a love specifically made possible by God alone. This is what we would call impersonal love. Not because it's aloof, but because it does not depend on the attractiveness of the object receiving love. Agapao emphasizes the subject's action of loving. It demands the integrity of the subject who loves rather than the object being loved. It requires no acquaintance with that object. It is unconditional love. Phileo love, on the other hand, is not a bad love, but it is human love. It emphasizes the object, specifically its attractiveness. When Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He's essentially saying, would you do absolutely anything for me despite the cost to you? And Peter says, the best I can say is that you are attractive to me. You are pleasing to me. My personal acquaintance with you benefits me. This is conditional love. So notice as well, he says, do you love me more than these? In the context, this must mean the other apostles who are sitting on the shore with him. Now, why does he ask him this question specifically? Probably because just a few days earlier, Peter had made such a claim 
to love Jesus more than all of the other apostles. Matthew 26 records that after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. A verse later, Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Peter is not able to say that he loves God or loves Jesus with agapao love more than the other apostles. And so he said, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agapao me more than these other apostles? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that you are attractive to me. And that's probably the best I can say. But he said to him, then feed my lambs. Peter does fulfill this commission to feed Christ's lambs. And he does so in 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter is basic Bible doctrine. It is for the baby believer, for the new believer, and it teaches them things that solidify them in their faith. Peter was, in fact, Peter even mentions that Paul's writing is hard to understand. Peter's specific purpose seems to be to make it easy to understand for the new believer. Whether or not he succeeded is a question of, is a uh, is a rife debate. Some of the things that Peter says are quite complicated, but he makes them as simple as he can. And here he states part of his purpose here in 1 Peter 2. He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter is faithful to do what Christ tells him to do. But Christ has another question for him. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me with the implication of at all? He's dropped out here. Do you love me more than the apostles? Okay, you can't say that. Do you love me at all? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him then, shepherd my sheep. Peter also does this. Not only does he feed these sheep, but he guides them and he protects them from false doctrine. In fact, we see in Acts 4 that he is one of the leaders in Jerusalem that, uh, that is guiding these new believers. But in 1 Peter 5, he writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter not only is shepherding his own flock, see here he says, I am a fellow elder with you, but he's also shepherding these other shepherds. He is caring for the flock of Christ at large. He is faithful to Christ's commission to him. 
In John 21, 17, Jesus asks him a third time. He says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Christ has now diminished the command or the, uh, the question. Okay, you cannot say that you love me with unconditional love. Can you at least say with confidence that you do have friendship with me? Can you at least say with confidence that you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now this is different. This is adult sheep. Before he had said, feed my lambs, Arnion. Here he says, feed my sheep, Probiton. And he does just that. I don't have a quotation from it, but the book of Second Peter is a lot more advanced doctrine than the book of First Peter. In fact, if we take the author of Hebrews' uh, example of what is basic doctrine and what is not, the first book of Peter is basic doctrine. The second is not. It takes for granted that basic doctrine, and it goes beyond. John 21.18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, this is John's notation, and he's writing this in about 85 AD after Peter had been crucified in about 65 AD. So John knew what had happened to Peter. He understood this phrase to mean that Peter would reach a relatively old age, but eventually he would be led off to his death against his will. Peter proved his love for Christ because Christ had proved his love for him in the resurrection. And as Peter himself grew, he grew in that love, and he even went to his death for Christ and for the purpose of shepherding his sheep. This is the change, the radical transformation that the resurrection, the power of the resurrection has in the believer. This is the resurrection power that is available as we grow in Bible doctrine, as we feed the Spirit so it can enable us to good works. This Peter did. But Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? In other words, he looks back at John. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? All right, so I'm going to be killed against my will. What about John? Now, Peter's probably an older man at this point, probably in his 30s, at least as old as Christ. John is just a kid. He's about 19, maybe 20 at this point. He's going to live into his old age. And John is writing this again in about 85 AD, after he's probably 75 years old, at least. So Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. In other words, Peter's responsibility is to follow God's will, not to know God's will for everyone else. Peter is responsible to God, not to John. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. 
Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is this to you? John is clearing up a rumor that had been spreading around the uh, first century world that John wouldn't die. And you know, there's probably good reason that some of them were spreading this because they tried to kill John. They boiled him and he didn't die. In fact, the uh, attempts to kill him were so futile that Domitian ended up just banishing him to the island of Patmos. But then we get the appendix on the appendix of John's gospel. And he writes, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and who wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. In other words, I, John, was that very one who Peter looked back at. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were to be were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, keep in mind all that God is and all that God does, and then look at your Bible, and suddenly it doesn't seem so big anymore. Of everything that God chose to tell us, he writes it all in just 66 books. Of the life of Christ, we get four books. This seems almost excessive until we realize just how much is not able to be written in these books. So there is a lot. These authors had to be selective in what they wrote. God had to be selective in what he wrote because he gave us a book that is able or that we are able then to read and to understand, to consume in a single lifetime. Unlike many of the other world religions that have volumes and volumes and volumes, I'm thinking of the Kabbalah specifically. How would anyone be able to study and know those? But we can study our Bible because God has given us enough for us to understand, for us to grow, for us to learn, for us to know him. After Jesus appeared to these seven disciples in Galilee, he appears to 500 witnesses. At this point, he gives the great commission to his disciples as well. This was witnessed by many uh, witnesses. He gives them authority. This is his second commission to them. He tells them that they are to go into all of the world, that they are to make disciples, that they are to baptize in his name. These are all discipleship things, taking for granted that they would preach the gospel, that people would get saved. He says, go beyond that and train them up. The Great Commission is not just to go get a bunch of people saved, but to teach them, to raise them, to shepherd them. He promises them that he will be with them even to the ends of the earth. He promises them that no matter where they go on earth, he is going with them. And this has to do with what will occur just a few weeks later at Pentecost, when they're inducted into the body of Christ. Wherever we go as well, Christ goes with us because we are in him and he is in us. And this is what it means to be in the church. We are baptized into his body. We are identified with him. We have been co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected. Everything that is true of Christ that saved us now becomes true of us because we are in him. He appeared as well to James individually. This is between the meeting of the 500 and his ascension. We don't know exactly when this happened, 
But Paul does cite this as one of the evidences in 1 Corinthians 15.7. Now, James was the half-brother of Christ. He became the leader, the first leader of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter, but James. James, as I said earlier, was cast from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, he is in the second category of apostles. The first category is those 11 who were with him in his earthly ministry and who saw him in his resurrection. There is also a second category of apostles, and these are those who saw the resurrected Christ before his ascension. These and only these are able to be called apostles. These and only these have the commission and the ability to speak on behalf of God and to write scripture. Once these exited the world scene, most of them, almost all of them, by martyrdom, the canon had to be closed. There was no more ability to write the word of God because he had commissioned only these few apostles. Lastly, he appears one more time to all of the apostles. And he does this just before his ascension. Before we get to there, if we even have time this morning to get to the ascension, I want to fly through a few facts about the significance of the resurrection, because now we saw with absolute certainty that it is true that this is what the Bible teaches. We want to see why it is important for us. First, we start with the facts of the resurrection. It was predicted by Christ himself. The disciples should have known. It is also the consistent conclusion to all of the Gospels. None of them end with his death. Each one of them includes his resurrection. And all of them, except for John, include as well his ascension. In the New Testament epistles and in Acts, it is an accepted truth. It is also a significant truth, being one of the most frequently cited events of Christ's life. The theories which are used to try to contradict the resurrection, one, they say that there was a conspiracy to lie, that the apostles just said that this was true, but it wasn't really. The problem is that no Jew would ever cultivate such a lie which has female witnesses as its primary testimony. They also died for this lie, if it was a lie. Now, I could see people dying for what they believed, whether or not it's true, but they believed it's true. There was no conspiracy to lie. There's also a theory of a stolen body. There's only two groups who would be interested in stealing the body of Christ, either his friends or his enemies. Well, his friends died for the resurrection of Christ and for preaching this, and if they had truly stolen his body, they could get out of this uh, martyrdom by producing the body. Even less likely is that his enemies stole it because they continually tried to disprove the resurrection. And one very simple way to disprove the resurrection would be to produce the body that they stole. They did not steal any body. There's also the swoon theory that he just passed out on the cross and that they buried a passed out Jesus and that he resuscitated while he was buried. The whole point of crucifixion is to get the person on the cross to pass out because that kills them. Being hanged on the cross makes it impossible to breathe 
unless you are able to hoist yourself up to get your lungs to where they can get some air. If Christ passed out on the cross, he would have died. Also, when they pierced his side, blood and water came out. This tells us what was going on inside his body. We know that his heart was pumping so fast to try to get blood through his body, blood that had been seeping out of his body, that liquid had accumulated around his heart and his lungs. So that when they pierced his side, not just blood, but water as well came out. He drowned. Jesus died a horrible and terrible death on the cross, and we know that he died. There's also the theory that they went to the wrong tomb and found that empty. This is very unbelievable. It was a private garden tomb, not a cemetery. It was guarded by Roman guards. It had a Roman seal on it. This would be very hard to miss. There were multiple visits to the tomb, not just one and not just by one party. And there were angelic witnesses to this being the proper tomb. There's also the theory that Jesus in his resurrection was just spirit and not flesh. Remember, his wounds were touched by Thomas, and he ate food together with his disciples. This was no spirit being. This was flesh and blood. There's also the theory that everyone who saw him simply hallucinated that they saw him. Hallucination is something that might occur to one individual. Perhaps you would have two, but the group of 500 witnesses who saw him did not all hallucinate this. Hallucination is not contagious. There's also the theory that a wild animal dragged him off. But remember that his linen claws were folded up neatly. No animal went in and carried him away. The Roman guards would easily have used this as an excuse rather than angels. There would be remains from a wild animal. And how would that wild animal get that stone away from the front of this tomb? Jesus was in the tomb, and then he was not. And this is one proof of the resurrection. The fact that he was not in there should have been enough for them as evidence. All of the eyewitnesses accounts that we spent most of this morning looking at, this is evidence for his resurrection. After his ascension even, in his glorified body, he appears to Stephen, he appears to Paul four times, and he appears to John at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We also see the radical transformations in the life of each one of these believers, looking specifically at the disciples' move from cowardice to bravery. The disciples of Acts are almost unrecognizable from those in the Gospels. In the Gospels, it is very hard to say of any of them that they are anything more than cowards. But in Acts, they're heroes because Christ in his resurrection changed their lives. We also see that his half-brothers, who were all unbelievers, all became believers after his resurrection. Everything leading up even to his crucifixion was not enough to prove to his brothers that he was the Messiah, but his resurrection was. The fact that the New Testament even exists is all predicated on the resurrection.
Without the resurrection, there is no new covenant. Without the new covenant, there is no new scripture. The New Testament that you hold in your hand is a proof that the resurrection occurred. It is the reason it was written. The fact that the church exists today, born from the resurrection of Christ, is proof that he rose again. Why did he rise again? He had to because of who he is. He is the son of God. He himself is divinity. He could not remain in the grave. He is the God man and he is the Messiah, the promised seed, the savior king. If he remained in the grave, God is not faithful to his word. And that would go against who God himself is. God has many covenants with Israel as well, one of them being the Davidic covenant, which promises an eternal descendant, a descendant who will never pass away. This can only be through the resurrection. His resurrection body was recognizable. Though not at first, they could, under, they could understand who he was. It could appear and disappear. He could pass through physical barriers. We know that this body is not exactly like ours. It's not yet a glorified body here that we see. We see a resurrection body. He's glorified at the, at the ascension. But we see that it is a material body made with flesh and with bone. His wounds are still present. In his glorified body, his wounds are no longer there. In the first chapter of Revelation, his hands are whole. He is not just a spirit. He can be touched. He can be seen. He breathes. And it is different, like I said, from his glorified body. Why does it matter? The resurrection is part of the content of saving faith. This is what we believe for salvation. This is the message that Paul brought to the Corinthians, that Paul brought everywhere he went and said, this and on the basis of this is your salvation. Remember, we don't need to know all of this, but this is some of the theology that goes into our salvation. Because of who he is, being human and God, he is not only able to stand in our place as another human, as a perfect human, but he is sufficient to stand in the place of every single human because he is infinitely more valuable, being God himself. And what he did, he died for our sins. He died in our place. And because he rose again, we know it worked. The saving content of faith is not just that he died. Because if he just died and he did not rise again, then his death was for nothing. And this is what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, the guarantee of the resurrection and that if he did not rise again, your faith is in vain. So the gospel is that Jesus died in your place and that it worked. This is what we understand when we believe that he died for our sins and that he rose again on the third day. His resurrection proved that he is the Messiah that he claimed to be. This was the final proof. This was the second sign of Jonah. It proved that his words are faithful because he claimed that this would occur. 
It proved that Jesus was faithful under the law, providing the sacrifice necessary for the cleansing of sins. It proves that he is the first fruits of more to come, that we will also join him in his resurrection. We have hope for life in him, not only because of his death, but especially because of his life. We know that he holds the keys of death. He has conquered it. Because of his resurrection, he is the head of the church, the head of a new organism, the new federal head of a new group of people. And because he was resurrected, we know that all will be resurrected. And this is, again, something that is not often preached from the pulpit. It is not only believers who await resurrection. Every single human being will be resurrected. The question is where they will spend that time after they have been resurrected. The first resurrection is to glory together with Christ, to live with him forever. But the second resurrection is unto eternal damnation. Because Christ rose from the dead, this is our hope but it is confirmation of eternal suffering for those who do not believe. This is proof of our resurrection. This is proof that the Old Testament saints who looked forward, hopefully, to the resurrection, that their hope was not in vain, that what they looked forward to, God is able to provide. It proves our justification. It did not provide it. His death on the cross provided it. But his resurrection proved that we are now accepted before God. It proves the power over sin. We are now able to conquer sin because of his resurrection, not because of our own power. It enables us for Christian service. It is not the works of our flesh by which we serve him, but works done in faith, offered in faith, while walking in the Spirit, resting in the truth of his finished work on the cross. It also guarantees judgment. Judgment has been handed over to Christ to execute. And when he rose from the grave, this guaranteed that he would sit over judgment over all of creation. Well, just very briefly, we'll finish by saying that after this 10th visitation by Christ, he ascended up into heaven. He was carried away and he was covered by a cloud as he rose. And he rose from the base of the Mount of Olives. And angels appeared there to the disciples who were with him. And as they stared up into the clouds, the angels told them, don't be amazed. He will return in the same manner as he has departed. The fact that he departed guarantees that he is now seated at the right hand of God. And that is a very fascinating thing. Not only does it fulfill Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be at the right hand of God, but it fulfills Christ's own prophecies that he would ascend to his father. Most fascinating of all, I think, is that there is not a spirit seated 
at the right hand of God, but there is a human bearing human flesh, perfected, but it is human flesh. There is a man born from woman, seated right now at the right hand of God, because he took on that flesh for us. He arrived in heaven in his bodily form, and this is assured by the rest of the testimony of Scripture. His body has been glorified since his ascension. And this fulfilled his promise to ascend up to his father and to prepare a place for us. Because we know that he ascended and we know that he is there now, we can trust this promise that he is preparing for us to join him. Because he is seated at the right hand of the father, he is able to act as the federal head over the church because now he is seated in his high priestly office, representing us as a human before God and representing God as God to us. He is the true mediator between God and man. This also guaranteed the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the coming of the Holy Spirit is also evidence that he arrived in heaven. Because he ascended, we also know that we will as well. He is the forerunner of what we will also join him in. And because he is presently, even today, seated at the right hand of God, and we are identified in him, Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, is able to write that we also are seated at the right hand of God. This is something that could not be said of any other body of believers, save only for the church who is identified in the body of Christ. And because he ascended into heaven, he was able to carry with him all of the Old Testament saints who had died previously with no place to go, and so were waiting in the bosom of Abraham. They are now in the presence of their Messiah that they looked for their whole lives. And that is all. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of the resurrection. We thank you that you are faithful to all of your promises, and we thank you that uh, though it might take quite a while on a Sunday morning to look at the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy, everything that history looked forward to and now we look back on with hopeful eyes toward the future as you will return and just as you ascended into heaven in the resurrection, so will we, because of your finished work on the cross. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.